Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to The Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Katie Hill, the former member of Congress in California's 25th Congressional District and the author of the new book She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality. Katie Hill, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Your story has been characterized as a scandal by some and a shameful political attack by others. How would you characterize what you've been through and the story you've got to share? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's both, right, in all fairness. And um, the reason I wrote the book, really, is to to show that what happened to me uh, is an example of what every woman goes through to a certain extent. And so, you know, I lay out these different battles that we face and, and you know, whether it's for control over our bodies, whether it's, um, you know, for equality in the workplace and equal pay or for our safety, um, whether, you know, in the home or, for, or against sexual assault. And unfortunately, you know, my story around cyber exploitation uh, is one that so many girls and women go through. Um, and in, in I think one of the worst statistics is that 50% of women who um, who are the victims of cyber exploitation contemplate suicide in the aftermath. And, um, you know, I've talked about my own experience with that. So my hope is, as we talk about these issues in the book, um, you know, that we, we really describe kind of how we can solve them. And one of the, the main ways to do that is by installing women in positions of power, especially, um, you know, legislatively. What happened to you is the stuff of nightmares for many, having intimate photos that, what has to be explained here for those that don't know, they weren't intimate photos you took yourself, they were taken of you in various situations. And in your book you state, quote, most people have nightmares of being trapped somewhere in the nude, trying to escape. In the days leading up to my resignation, that nightmare became my every waking hour. You've stated that, Obviously, information about your personal life and those photos that result in that resignation was released by a vindictive husband. But those images and their publication in the media were classed as revenge porn. They were put out there, but the media published them mm -hmm. and they were shared widely on social media. What needs to change, in your opinion, in the media and social media's handling of what has been classed as revenge porn? So revenge porn is a crime in some states. It needs to be made a crime across the board. And media and social media need to be held accountable if they are using photos that have been acquired through criminal activity. Um, that's exactly what it is. It's a it's sexual exploitation of somebody. Um, and you know, I it happened to me when I was in a position of power. And I think that there is there is a you know a case to be made for newsworthiness of it. But that doesn't mean that the photos should be published. That doesn't mean that there's any right to to take away somebody's basic privacy of the most intimate moments of their lives and, and of their bodies. That's a that's something that is a, a simple, you know, human uh, 
right to, to be able to, you know, not be exposed like that. And, um, and so I think that the media needs to be held accountable for that. And, and that's something that we're working on as well. You've teamed up with some victim rights attorneys to look at suing the media publications, in particular the Daily Mail, for publishing some of those photos. What's the status of that legal work and, and how have you found the protections that have been provided or not provided by the current laws that exist? Because you talk about how it's not a federal crime here. How's that battle been for you? Well, there are two different legal battles. One is um, of the, the criminal prosecution of my ex-husband and the people who were involved in the distribution of the photos. That is a, we don't have really any control over that and the laws are very narrow. So unfortunately, it is, it's been almost a year and, um, and you know, very little progress has been made on that front. Uh, despite the fact that, again, I'm a high profile person. When the investigation started, I was a member of Congress um, and, you know, if I can't get movement on that, then imagine, you know, the poor high school girl whose who's boyfriend or whose ex-boyfriend did it to her. Um, and as on the civil side, you know, we're still working on uh, exactly what that case is going to look like, because, like I said, this is kind of where the First Amendment butts up with the right to privacy. And um, and so, you know, we've, we've got to be really careful with that case. But we are planning to file um, something in the, you know, in the near future. There's obviously a debate around the newsworthiness of what happens in these situations, not just because of the, the case that, that happened to you in the days leading up to resignation and those stories with regards to, to your personal relationships and that. But when it comes to photos as well, there's arguably a, a newsworthiness of public interest in what goes on there. You obviously mentioned about how they shouldn't be published, but to what extent do you think voters have a right to know what their elected representatives do in their personal life? And also, in, in what way should the media be looking at covering that? Because we talked about what they, they shouldn't be allowed to do publishing those photos. But but how do they frame those conversations? Yeah, well, I think that, that there are a couple of different parts that you know we need to consider. One is, when we're talking about abuse of power, I think it's really important that the the person, the only person who came forward as as a victim or as someone who was even reporting it was never a member of my staff, was never somebody you know who was who was involved. It was my ex husband strictly. There was no, there was never anybody who you know had had been affected by it that was coming forward. Now that doesn't mean that it was right. That doesn't mean that you know I'm trying to excuse it. But um, the person who was honestly you know, hugely damaged by it was the person whose privacy was invaded, who, you know, was never, who was never, not, not me. I'm talking about the other person who was involved in the relationship who had no desire to become part of this, um, ever. And my, um, you know, my, my other piece around it is that I don't, I think that we, we have kind of started or not even started over the years, over, you know, the last few decades, we have, um, treated politicians, as more and more as sort of the same way we do with celebrities where we invade their personal lives. And I think as more of us who are younger, who have had our lives documented on social media from the time that we were really young, who have engaged in activities that have, that are, are normal, but are treated as taboos um, are, you know, it, it's going to create huge problems and it's going to keep regular people who maybe aren't the ones who, you know, thought about running for office their entire lives, but who, are good representatives and who are, you know, fighting for the right reasons and trying to make a difference in their communities, um, it's going to keep them from running in the first place 
or it's going to, you know, it's going to stop them uh, down the road. It's going to force them to, you know, uh, reconsider because it has a huge, huge impact on their families um, and on their mental health and on their ability to, to do a good job. So um, I don't think that, you know, our life choices are ones that, you know, need to be examined publicly. I think when there's a victim involved, that's a different story. Um, and, you know, again, my, my case is one where it's, it is complicated and I recognize that. Um, but I think when you look at who it's coming from, who the complaint is coming from, um, is really important. Under current laws, what happened to you referred to as revenge porn. But you talked about it in your book and in interviews about the issues with that terminology. Your, your colleagues in the Democratic Party have been working on legislation to address this. What do you believe it should be reclassified as in the law and then in the wider way it's viewed by society? Yeah, so revenge, there are two words in revenge porn. Revenge is, um, it implies that someone who's the subject of it, the target of it, has done something wrong and that they, the person who's releasing these photos or, or you know, videos is, is somehow, um, you know, avenging or, or is, you know, in the right by, uh, by taking out revenge on this person. That's just completely inaccurate. The second part is on porn. Porn is a, a recreational, uh, can, you know, thing that people can consume and is fine. You know, it's perfectly legal. It's something that a lot of people enjoy and that's totally okay. But not when it's non-consensual, not when someone um, has has not agreed to participate in this. That's when it totally changes from something that you know people can enjoy, that you know people can make money off of, um, and can choose to be in, to something that is completely exploitative. So that's why we refer to it as cyber exploitation, and the law should classify it that way as well. You talked about how one of the ways to change what happens to women in politics is to get more women out there elected in public office. And you mentioned about how you fear what happened to you and what could happen to others might discourage people from running for office. But you set up her time pack now to uh, address that, to get more women running for office. Can you tell us a bit about the work that's going on there? Sure. Well, I decided to found her time, which is a political action committee, um, out of the funds that I had already raised for re-election. So I converted my re-election campaign funds into uh, this political action committee. And it is entirely devoted to helping women, especially young women and women of color, to, um, to you know, to, to make it into office. And uh, it started out at federal office, so specifically con the congressional level. But we also discovered very quickly that we need to move um, lower down the, you know, the bench to state offices, to um, state legislatures, and even to some local offices to have the kind of impact we're looking for. But it's the idea is that we get in early. We go in um, when candidates have, you know, have this huge barrier to cross of raising the initial money, the initial seed money, um, to be taken seriously and to be considered viable. And that's something that women have a harder time with than men do, especially when they're not coming from wealthy fam families or from, you know, political dynasties. Um, so that's what we're doing. Uh, we have a lot of really exciting races that are coming up in November, and um, both on the congressional side and the, the state and local side. Um, but the, there are two other pieces of her time. One is we're figuring out how can we best mobilize young women, women between 18 and 40, as a voting bloc, as people who, who can mobilize as progressives, uh, but also as, you know, around female candidates. And what is it that's going to motivate them to do that, not just in a presidential election every four years, but every every single election at the state, you know, municipal levels even, um, because it has 
the number of women who are elected at every single level has to um, has to really reflect the, the fact that we're half of the population if we want to get our issues prioritized. And the third and final thing that we do with her time is advocate for the legislative changes that, you know, including the ones around cyber exploitation that we talked about. Um, so in the book, I lay out, you know, these different battles that we're facing that we're already involved in <clears throat> from, you know, battles for our safety, battles for equal pay and the way that we're treated in the workplace. Um, and there are real legislative solutions that can, you know, can truly fix those, but only if we have legislators who are going to prioritize them. So, you know, as an advocacy organization, that's what we're working on as well. Her time is concerned about backing long shot candidates or those who don't yet have the resources that come with being a proven or established politician. In some ways, those candidates who might be deemed long shots are potentially the best candidates to back because they have those experiences, they just don't have that political establishment backing. Do you think part of the reason why systemic issues haven't been addressed is because Congress has too many people who don't challenge that status quo, they don't rock the boat? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's why representation matters so much. So even though, you know, we're even even though it's I consider this a feminist agenda that we lay out in the book um, and that we're advocating for through her time, it's one of the first things that I talk about is HR uh, one, which is about you know restoring power to the people. It's about making um, you know sure that we've got fair elections, getting money out of politics, and you know allowing for people who are regular folks to have public financing of campaigns so that they have a have an actual shot of competing against the ones who have historically been the only ones who can make it to power, who are typically older white men, straight, um, and who have a lot of money, and you know even. So we're seeing that start to diversify, but it's, uh, you know, it's taking a long time and women still only make up 25% of most uh, legislative bodies. You know, there's, there are state legislatures are a tiny bit higher, but almost nowhere do women make up in the United States more than 30%. So until we get to 50, I don't think that these issues are going to be prioritized. And we see that for any kind of marginalized community. When you don't have lived experience with these issues, you're not, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be concerned with tax cuts for, for corporations as opposed to, um, you know, how are we going to raise the minimum wage to uplift workers and uplift, you know, a huge portion of the, of the population. On that idea of representation, you came out as bisexual after high school. You were California's first openly bisexual person elected to Congress. Do you think in the same way there are still strides that need to be made in female representation in politics, there are still huge strides that need to be made in LGBT plus representation? Because we've seen how the uh, Equality Act has been stalled by the Senate because there aren't enough people with those lived experiences in the Senate currently who understand that. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we're again, we've seen some strides made in that front. But the fact that here we are, you know, in in 2020, and I was the I was the first one from California. There's still there's still such a small number of LGBT uh, members of Congress and, and in other uh, bodies as well. Um, bisexual uh, bisexuality is underrepresented, kind of it across the board. And it's actually there are studies that show that of the LGBTQ community, bisexual people make up the majority of it, but do not in uh, in terms of how, you know how they're out. They're often kind of put into, well, if you're, if you're with a person of the opposite sex, then you're heterosexual. And if you're with a person of the same sex, then you're gay. And so um, there's also this stigma around it, or there's this hypersexualization around it. And, 
So I think that, you know, part of the reason that I decided to be out about it was to really kind of draw some light on that. And, 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 you know, I think that was a, that was also a big part of why my scandal or whatever was so sensationalized. In your final speech before Congress on the 31st of October 2019, you closed by saying, quote, as my final act, I voted to move forward with the impeachment of Donald Trump on behalf of the women of the United States of America. Do you see there as being a double standard for the way women are treated to this day and also LGBT individuals like yourself are treated to this day in America compared to their male heterosexual counterparts and how do we fundamentally change that is that about the representation element how do we fix that well 100 percent, right we're seeing it we've, we've obviously seen it with people like uh, you know president trump who's in the white house who stays in the white house and is you know has been accused credibly accused multiple times of sexual assault and was even bragged about it on tape and that people don't, you know, that they elected him anyway, and he's never going to be held accountable for it. He doesn't care. His base doesn't care. Um, I don't, I honestly don't think that we could, uh, we can truly change that until women are the ones who are, you know, holding at least equal power. Um, but we see it too in terms of just how women are talked about in general. For example, Kamala Harris, as we've gotten to this, you know, this nomination leading up to it. She didn't apologize enough. She's too ambitious. You hear these kind of phrases that, that are um, used as digs around or for women that just aren't for men. Another is, you know, my my own example. We see I, I've been criticized for not apologizing enough or not, you know, um, I, people are like, well, have you taken accountability? I'm like, I don't know how to take more accountability for this. I really don't. I stepped down from Congress. I've talked about it so many times. But we don't even expect men to apologize. It's almost like a, it's like a hallelujah if they ever acknowledge that they've done any wrong. But um, I think that with women, we expect them to to grovel and to disappear um, if they've made any kind of mistake whatsoever. So um, you know, it's something that we need to call out every single time we see it. It's something that, fortunately, you know, I think people are be, becoming more aware of it. Um, but that we've all got to look at our own behavior too, and see if we're if we're falling into this kind of ingrained sexism that we all grew up with, where um, where women have different expectations than men. You took accountability very quickly, announced your resignation within a number of days from Congress after what happened. Whereas there are male politicians who, as you cited, Donald Trump, who has bragged about sexually assaulting women and is still in the Oval Office and is running for re-election. Do you regret, in part, resigning so quickly when your male counterparts, who can be mired in scandal, stay in their positions of power? It's certainly something that I struggled with. And it's, you know, honestly, it seemed like the, the only decision at the time. I was being flooded with these you know, these articles and these photos that I didn't know when it was going to end, especially because there's, you know, there seemed to be a limitless supply um, that the that the media and that my Republican opponents were going to use and that my my ex had supplied them with. Um, so, you know, my family was being harassed. My, um, you know, my sister's business was being trolled. I didn't want to be a liability for my, um, you know, for my colleagues, especially as we were moving into impeachment. And I didn't want to distract from that. Um, and also, it, like I said in the book, it's a nightmare. It's a true nightmare um, as an individual. 
So I, I felt like it was the, the right thing to do at the time. I did want to be able to take accountability. I didn't want to be, you know, a hypocrite in terms of how I'd advocated for Me Too issues. Um, and so, you know, that doesn't mean that it's, it's not something that's haunted me sometimes, especially when the seat that, you know, in the special election to replace me went back to a Republican. I think we're going to get that back in November, but it's still, it, it's something that I've thought a lot about. And, um, I don't, I don't regret it. I still think it was the right thing to do. Um, but it really does draw this striking example of the difference between men and women. And I hope that women who are in a future situation like mine can possibly have additional strength because of what happened to me and, and um, see that it, you know, that, that maybe they can stick through it. So. In 2016, America rejected a qualified female presidential candidate for an unqualified male candidate. During the 2020 Democratic primary, qualified female candidates were dismissed or face sex attacks. They still are facing those sexist attacks. Are you concerned about the way that Kamala Harris is going to be treated now she's been announced as Joe Biden's running mate? We're already seeing how people have begun to launch those sorts of attacks against her, as you mentioned, calling her ambitious and so on, words that would never be used if it was a male running mate that had been announced. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we, we've known this. Women have known this. Uh, probably most of us have just known this ever since Biden announced that he was going to select a woman as his running mate. Um, we were, we were, it was very clear that the sexist attacks were going to be all over the place. And honestly, I think she's going to face more attacks than Biden himself, because as we've seen, you know, the, the right and Trump have been launching these attacks against Biden and it hasn't really mattered in the polls. So they're going to turn their attention to, you know, to Kamala. And unfortunately, I think we have, um, socially, we have a tendency to allow that to happen. So I think that we've really got to, to come together, especially as Democrats um, and as progressives and say that we're not going to stand for that. We're going to, to stay strong and call these, uh, these sexist attacks what they are. So I, I really hope that we don't fall into that as well. The Democratic Party is looking to flip the Senate, the White House, take back Republican strongholds just like the seat that, that you took. You arrived in Congress having flipped a district that had been held by the Republican Party for decades as part of that 2018 blue wave. What lessons do you have for your colleagues who are fighting to flip seats? What can people learn from that fight? Because we shouldn't take away from everything that happened since the, the impressive wave that you sailed in as one of the Crooked Seven, Pod Save America's Crooked Seven, taking over the California seats. I think that... It's interesting because this election is so different from 2018 for a few different reasons. The first is that that this election has become so much about Donald Trump, and it's impossible for it not to be about Donald Trump and, and COVID. Um, so, you know, I I think that my campaign, if I had been running again, would look totally different than it had the first time around. Um, but what I see in, in any of these swing districts, what people are looking for the most is, um, is someone that they believe is going to be accountable to them and not to big corporations and special interests. And if you can show that, you know, you've got one side that is, is willing to make huge tax cuts for corporations, um, uh, not even protect workers from, you know, basic safety hazards that are coming from, you know, from this COVID pandemic, don't, doesn't even want to give extended unemployment benefits, 
um, and is willing to back up Donald Trump and his corruption every step of the way versus a party or a person who's going to do the exact opposite of that. To me, it's a clear choice. And that's the that's the part that needs to kind of be hammered home in every single one of these um, these swing districts and, and in these swing states. So, um, you know, the, we have to look at the, the landscape differently in each election. But this time, I really think it's going to come down to what kind of leadership can we trust to watch out for us? If Senator Kamala Harris wins the vice presidency in November, California Governor Gavin Newsom will have the decision over who to appoint to fill the two years remaining in her Senate term. A number of names have been floated as potential replacements. You yourself would be eligible to fill that seat. Would you be interested in filling her seat? Would you want your name to go forward for that? Listen, I think I have uh, enough baggage that I don't think I'd be the one that's going to be, uh, um, you know, put forward. And also, I think it's important for California as such a diverse state. If you're replacing a woman of color, one of, you know, the only black woman in the Senate and um, and just in general that, you know, the Senate is even less diverse than than Congress is. Um, I think it's important to be able to replace her with a with a woman of color. Also, you know, I. I'm very committed to helping other women get elected right now and to pushing forward this agenda. Um, I don't think I need to be in an elected position uh, to do that right now. So, you know, it doesn't mean I, I never will consider it again. But in the short term, I think there's uh, there are plenty of other people who can take up that mantle and do a good job. Finally, you were talked about as the new face of a political generation when you entered Congress. As we've mentioned, you flipped a Republican-held seat that had been in, essentially considered a Republican stronghold. We've talked about your experience during your time in office, your work with Her Time Pack, and your new book. From all of this, what lessons have you learned that you would like those who come next to follow in your footsteps, such as the women you're helping to get elected? What lessons would you like them to know? I think the first one is that we have a long way to go, even even more than I think many of us thought. That became clear in 2016 when you know Hillary Clinton was defeated, when we didn't think that was going to be possible. Um, it became clear with me when you know I was this rising star and I was you know taken down by these misogynistic forces and these double standards. Um, and I think that that. That goes to show that, you know, we have to stand up and fight that much more. So, you know, the message that I've got to other people is that you who are who are considering running, who are going to follow in my footsteps, you are you are warriors and you are on the front lines. And that means that you might get hurt. There's a good chance you're going to get hurt, but we don't have a choice and we're counting on you. Um, and I think what we what we have to show is that we're going to stand behind them. So, you know, I, I hope that my my own experience is uh is a lesson that can be learned from um, by you know by everyone, um, and that that it doesn't continue to happen. That it's that's a, it's a unique experience, and that it's not one that's repeated. Um, but I think it, people ask me this all the time: What would you say to other women um, since since it happened you know to you? And I, I just say like if you think about it, mine is probably the worst case scenario, right? It's your worst nightmare of what could happen if you're <laughs> if you're elected. And um, if you think about it. I'm, I've survived it. Um, I, you know, conceivably could have survived it politically if I'd stayed in. And, um, and I hope that uh, people can kind of wrap their heads around, well, that can happen and I need to be ready for it. And, um, and I'm going to stick it out. Katie Hill, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. 
That was Katie Hill, the former member of Congress in California's 25th Congressional District and the author of the new book, She Will Rise, Becoming a Warrior in the Battle for True Equality. You can find out more about her on Twitter at KatieHill4CA, the Her Time Pack at her-time.com, and her new book, She Will Rise, at shewillrisebook.com. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe. Or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon. Carolyn, Colin, Ibalashnikov, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.